Uh, I'd like with you for a moment to come with me to the city of Glasgow after the war. Uh, Glasgow after the war is in a bad way. The old tenement flats that have been there for many years are overcrowded and unfit to live in. And it's uh, go forward a few years where, uh, as a result of this crisis, the city, in the city, they've decided to build many high-rise flats, rather as we have here in London. Many of the tenement flats are, are demolished in order to make room for these high-rise flats. Yet, within a, a, a short space of time, even these high-rise flats are found to be poorly built and have to be demolished. But what if these buildings are an image of our minds? The temptation we have is to follow what's new. The temptation we have is for our thinking to fit in with that of our society around us or to refuse to change the way we think, to be stubborn. But there is a third way and we'll look at that shortly. And that's that we need to be transformed. And this evening we're going to look at why the mind needs to be transformed, how the mind is transformed, and the difference that this transformation makes. So we're going to look at why the mind needs to be transformed, how the mind is transformed, and the difference that this transformation makes. So to start off with that first one, why? Why does the mind need to be transformed? Now it's a tendency uh, in our society, and we've probably had this for some years, to think that all our problems are due to ignorance, to a lack of education. Uh, take Raheem Sterling's response to when he received racist abuse, when he took to Twitter, he put that hashtag on, get some education. That was, from his point of view, and you, you can hardly blame him, a sense that if only people would understand uh, the nature of a human being, then you just simply wouldn't uh, say to someone the kind of things that he, uh, were, were being addressed to him. However, the problem, the problem with thinking it is simply down to education is, well, it's imagining that we're, we're effectively all walking whiteboards. All you need to do is rub out what is there and you know, that rub out the wrong stuff and write in the good stuff. That's kind of all you need. That is how we often tend to think. However, the Bible is more realistic and it suggests that we have actually a far deeper problem. And uh, if you're able to turn with me to Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul here lays out what is the problem with our mind. Romans chapter 1, that's page 900 and... 39 of the church Bible. <clears throat> and Paul says these words here, down in verse 21 of Romans chapter 1, having already explained about how humanity, as, as human beings, we have chosen to reject, to, to not worship the true and living God. He then describes the effects of that. And we read then in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images 
resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So Paul there is saying that by rejecting the true and living God, your mind has become foolish. Even if you think you're wise, your mind has become foolish. More than that, he says, your mind has become depraved. You choose what is evil rather than what is good. And he also says that your mind has become futile in its thinking. We think about that which is worthless, that which has no value, of no weight. And this is true, sadly, of every single man, woman and child. You've inherited it and you need to face up to it. And this therefore exposes why so many of the messages given well, to, our, to our youngsters and, and to many of us today uh, do not help. So, for instance, the message to follow your heart. Well, it's all very well following your heart, but if your heart is faulty, if, you're, if in your mind, your mind is, thinks which is that which is foolish, that which is depraved, and that which is futile in its thinking, then your heart can surely be no guide. You may as well uh, use a faulty compass to try and negotiate uh, climbing the Himalayas, or try getting around those of you who are aligned on your phones, one with a faulty GPS system. It simply cannot help you. Similarly with the message, you've got to be true to yourself. But what if that self is crooked and warped? How is being true to yourself of any value? Sadly, that's the message of, of the, the pride events, isn't it? Whatever your sexual preference, be true to yourself. But that, as Paul shows here, is to be true to a mind that is foolish, that's depraved, and that is futile in its thinking. And you might notice that when you reach the end of the chapter, where Paul works out, works through, what are the consequences of this way of living? He ends up saying this in verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The world will applaud you if you live in a foolish way. The world will love you if your way of living is depraved. The world will congratulate you for being futile in your own way of thinking. Uh, we can't, I can't help but think of uh, Romans 12 verse 2, which I think my brother David preached on here uh, from Thames Mead a couple of weeks ago. Um, it, there's a famous paraphrase of that verse um, which says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mould. And this is very much the pressure that Paul here is talking about. We not only have an internal problem, it's also we have an external problem. It's not only that our minds are foolish and depraved and futile in their thinking. The world around us wants to keep us that way. It wants us to squeeze us into its thinking. We put it like this to, to think of that Glasgow image again. The tenement flats, they, though they may look very new and gleaming, within a short time turn out to be as poor as the things that they replaced. So, thinking back that, to that situation then, what's the solution? 
As we said, it's transformation. If we think back to that Glasgow problem, at some point the planners began to realise that the high-rise solution was not working. And instead they took a look at the old tenement flats again and made a decision that maybe what was needed was not to demolish them, but to renew them. The, the issue there was rather to renovate rather than to demolish. So as a result, they moved families out, they gutted these flats and made them into beautiful and now very desirable homes to live in. So these old tenement flats have been renewed. And in the same way, that's what our minds need. Our minds need to be renewed. Yes, the world around us does want us to fit in. It wants us to conform and to be like a dodgy high-rise flat. But God wants to guide us by renewing our minds, like the old tenement flats that have been renewed. God wishes to remake us from the inside out, to reorder us so that we are fit for his purposes. And so we're going to look then at how the mind is transformed. We've seen why the mind needs to be transformed, because our think way of thinking is futile and it is depraved. But if we go back to the passage that we uh, read earlier from Colossians chapter 1, we see how the mind is transformed, how the mind is transformed. And in summary, we can say it is through God's word and by God's spirit. The mind is transformed through God's word and by God's spirit. Now, I wonder if you were to um, think of the sort of thing that you would pray constantly for any particular group of Christians. I wonder what sort of thing you would say. Well, the interesting thing in the uh, opening verses of this letter to the Colossians that Paul wrote is that we have the Apostle Paul telling the Colossians, believers who he is yet to meet, how he is praying for them. And we can learn about some of the priorities that he sees that all Christians should have through his prayer for them. And so if we look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 9 and 10, this is what Paul writes there. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Notice here that Paul prays that they might know God's will. Now, especially if we were to stop and pause there, we can see, we can think that, yes, that's a very good thing to pray for any Christian. Especially, we might think, in the areas of guidance. You know, how am I to live each day in a way where I know that what I'm doing is pleasing to the Lord? Isn't it a good thing that I pray to know God's will? And that is certainly true. However, we might be somewhat mistaken exactly what Paul means here by God's will. Because the interesting thing is that what Paul then immediately goes on to explain is what God has done and is continuing to do for the believers there. So, for instance, if we were to take you down to uh, uh, verse uh, 13 or even verse 12 before it, he talks about that he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. 
He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then he breaks into this astonishing passage in terms of explaining whom the Lord Jesus is as the one who is the image of the invisible God and the one who has transferred us from that darkness into light. So we may well say here that this is Paul talking about God's big rescue plan for us. That is the will of God that he wants the Colossians to know. Here is God's big plan to rescue both us and the whole of his creation. And today, this is something that we learn through the reading and studying of God's word. This is what God has revealed to us through apostles such as Paul, through the prophets who came before him as well, through the gospel writers, through all the writers of the scripture. And notice that it's the same Holy Spirit who inspired the human writings, who, uh, the human writers, who gives us wisdom and understanding. Uh, this comes across more clearly, actually, in the New International Version of this uh, passage, where there we read, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. This, uh, what we have translated as spiritual wisdom and understanding, almost certainly refers to what the Holy Spirit gives. And that's drawn out there in the NIV. So the same Holy Spirit who inspired those uh, writers to to write God's word in the first place is the Spirit who enables us to grow in wisdom and understanding as we learn. So we might say, therefore, that to know God's will is something we learn through God's word, and it is by God's Spirit. So, if we were to turn over to Colossians 3, verse 16, we get a bit more information about that, about where we see um, that Paul writes there, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Again, notice those themes of God's word, God's wisdom, and God's spirit, all at work together, enabling us to grow in knowing God's will. And here we have the clues to how Paul understands how we get a transformed mind, to be able to think in a way it is honouring to God, rather than that which is like the world. We need to pay attention to the reading and teaching of God's word in scripture. There's a famous prayer, I think it's of Thomas Cranmer from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer to understand the scriptures that has these words. Grant us that we may hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. Wonderful words. I'll just say it again. Grant us that we may hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. I wonder if that's our prayer as we come to read God's word. When we're taught God's word, whether that's through a sermon, through a Bible study, Lord, help me to take this in. Lord, may this change me. May this be something that I take within me. 
that your mind might be formed within me. So that means that coming to God's word means that we should come with a humble attitude, an attitude to learn, an attitude to pray and meditate or think over the teaching of God's word. But one of our problems really with that word meditation is that it's, we, we tend to think of it now as emptying the mind, whereas it's rather filling the mind and meditating, thinking over those truths that God is speaking to us in his presence. And this can make a huge difference, I believe, to uh, our gatherings as believers. How, how much teaching do we receive from God's word? And how much actually makes a difference to us? And perhaps one of the reasons why our activities can end up being fruitless is because we have not taken the time to do that, as Cranmer said, inward digesting of God's word. Maybe we have at times a certain amount of spiritual indigestion. We're getting so much teaching, but how much are we actually digesting? How much are we taking in so that it changes us and changes our minds the way that we think? So, again, if we wish to have a transformed mind, you need a humble attitude. You need to pray for God's spirit to form your mind into that of the Lord Jesus as you learn his word. And a story that helps us see the reason why we need this is, uh, comes from the American Bible teacher, Howard Hendricks. Now, he tells a story of uh, a Sunday school competition uh, that would award a prize to the child who could memorise the greatest number of Bible verses. And uh, there was a particular boy who won this prize. He managed to memorise more verses than anybody else in the Sunday school. Now, later on, some things from that Sunday school were stolen. And investigations were made. And guess who turned out to be the thief? It was the boy who had memorised the largest number of Bible verses. It's possible for us to have God's word in our minds but if it is not in our hearts it will not change us we need the inner transformation by God's spirit so that we can obey God's word and for those of us here especially who are parents and and grandparents indeed uh, we need to remind ourselves that this inner transformation this is more important than your child's SATs or GCSE or whatever particular stage they're at, uh, whatever particular um, thing they're aiming for next in their education. The school they go to, which university course they take, it matters far more that their mind is transformed, that their hearts are transformed through God's word and by God's spirit. Remember, each of us has a foolish mind darkened by sin and your children's minds need to be renewed are you teaching them what god has done for them in the lord jesus christ are you praying for them that god by his spirit would draw them even while they are young to know and to believe in the lord jesus christ that's the wonderful and amazing possibility which this verse holds out for us Yes, like us, they are foolish in their minds. They are darkened by sin. 
And yet God in his mercy and grace can draw them, even when they're young, and transform them by his word, through his word and by his spirit. Because sadly, as we can see throughout the world, you can be the most academically successful person in the world, but in God's eyes, you can still be a fool because your thinking is foolish. So we've seen that the mind needs to be transformed through God's word and by God's spirit. But finally, we see the difference that this transformation makes. Going back to Colossians 1 again and verse 10. Um, sorry, actually, I'll, I'll take it up from verse 9. That uh, Paul prayed for them that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You notice that how this change, the, the Spirit's work in changing and enabling us to grow in wisdom has a profoundly practical outcome. Learning to walk, or as it is in other translations, to live in a manner worthy of the Lord. And therefore, we can see that God's word brings about wisdom in our lives. And that's the hard work of testing and approving, of judging and making decisions. Thinking of ourselves realistically. This is the path to knowing God's will and to making godly decisions. Part of the problem that we have in this whole area of, of knowing God's will, of, of, of knowing what the right thing to do is, is that, that we've reduced the state of the Christian mind down to what I will describe as an old phone before you had so many different things you could do. It, it could take calls, but that was about it. In other words, that we tend to have a view of the, that God would somehow speak the answer to me in every situation when I needed to know what God's will was. And we have reduced that down in the thinking of many believers, that somehow God would speak to me, God would say to me, God would communicate to me in that moment what it is to know what his will is. But that's not the picture that Paul gives here. He talks about us growing, us, us uh, being filled with the knowledge of God's will in wisdom and understanding. And it's particularly that word wisdom that we looked at as we saw in uh, our reading from Proverbs as something that God gives to us, something that we need to learn and to acquire from when we're younger. And we need to have wisdom because it's not just merely what we might say moral questions, what is right and what is wrong, those things are important. But we know that so many of the decisions we have aren't, in life aren't black and white, we might say. The, the, the right answer is not necessarily always that clear to us. Now, we need to grow in God's wisdom, to grow in what is successful living in his eyes, not the world's eyes. Not just choosing right from wrong, but choosing the best from the good. Having the ability to see, choose, and to attain the best goal in life. Not so much acquiring knowledge, 
as learning what to do with it. We might say it's not so much owning a tool like a hacksaw as knowing how to use it to saw effectively. It's not just a matter of knowing your strengths and weaknesses, but for instance, knowing a job that makes use of them, that is suitable for you. Now, on the face of it, this can seem very unspiritual. People uh, might question, well, surely I should wait on the Lord, shouldn't I? Surely I need the Lord to be the one who makes decisions. However, that's to miss out on how and why God uh, chooses to grant to us wisdom. Because this is God's way of helping us to grow into being the mature and responsible believers whom he desires us to be. We should believe in the completeness, the fullness of God's written word. He's communicated to us all that we need for godliness in his word. And therefore, to grow into maturity requires that we be transformed through his word and by his spirit. Otherwise, if you think of it, we can be rather like um, a young child learning to cook. Maybe this has been the experience of some of you here. How do you teach your child to cook? Well, in the early stages, as a parent, you need to give every single instruction to your child. Now, you need to wash your hands at this point. You need to put the gas on. You uh, need to watch the pan and to stir it. However, the hope is that your son or your daughter, as they grow older, may learn to do these things for themselves. I mean, I would be, um, to say the least, shocked, if not just a little uh, unhappy, if my son, uh, who's at university in Warwick, phones me this evening and says, Dad, I need to make some pasta. How do I do it? And you have to talk through with him about boiling water and so on. No. We expect our children to learn and to acquire the skills for cooking as they grow older so they can do it themselves. They can build on the knowledge and that they even grow wise and know ways of doing it. Um, and that same son can actually make a chicken tagine now and I'm in a clue how you would do that. So he's doing very well. So God expects us in the same way to grow in knowing his will, in knowing what is wise and to apply the knowledge that he has given us. So the mind needs to be transformed by God's word and through God's spirit to grow in wisdom. How might this work out, though? And and for a moment, I want us to think about those who might be facing crucial decisions and perhaps in the the areas of um, choosing a, a subject to study or those who are considering marriage. I'm going to going to do two case studies for you here. Let's consider Wing. Um, she is getting to the point of applying to university. There's a lot of her that is interested in studying law, and yet there is also part of her who wants to go quite a different direction. She's interested in studying medicine. How does a passage like this help her? If, if the answer is not for her to kind of sit back and wait for God to communicate the answer to her, then what should she do? Well, she needs to ask good questions. For instance, would one of these enslave her to work? Would one of them enslave her to pride or to money? Could she see herself doing good in one of those more than in the other? 
could she talk to experienced people in both fields? What would the people who know her best think suits her? Has she spoken to her parents, to her friends, to people at church? Which do they think might suit her? Now, none of those in and of themselves is necessarily going to give uh, her the clear direction that she needs to go in. But any uh, young believer who is seeking to know God through his word and apply such questions thoughtfully and prayerfully to their life will, I'm sure, be helped by God to be able to make decisions that with confidence they can believe are God's will for their lives. Or to take Dave. Now, he's considering marriage. There's his childhood friend, Vicky, who's grown up and he's known and knows very well. However, over the summer, he went and helped out on a Christian camp and he met lively Mandy. But she lives far away. Whom should he choose to marry? Questions he might ask himself are, is it wise for him in the first place to marry right now? Has he maybe got responsibilities of study or, or care towards others? Do either of these girls, be it Vicky or Mandy, do they share the same passion he has to serve God? Does he need to give more time to get to know them both? Or does he need to get on and commit to one or the other? Dare I say it, I think that the latter issue is becoming a problem for a lot of men, getting on and making a decision about who to marry. But let's, as we close our time tonight, give thanks to God that he is someone who will give us wisdom, who will give us understanding. After all, he's given us his word, he's given us his Holy Spirit to form in our minds that which is honouring and pleasing to him. Let God enable you to grow in making wise decisions as you meditate on his word, that by the Spirit he would be trans at work transforming your mind, renewing your mind, so that as Paul writes in Romans 12, you may be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Amen.